from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll start today with U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, who will talk with us about mental health initiatives and more from Washington. Then we'll talk with two redistricting experts about Michigan's citizen-led effort and why, despite the apprehension being inspired by many draft maps, they still think this process is better and is going to produce better results than what we had when partisans drew the line. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. There have been big gaps in Michigan's mental health care system for a really long time, and add to that a deadly pandemic that has caused widespread anxiety and forced people to stay inside for months on end, and those gaps have become even wider, and the need to fill them is now more urgent than ever. Yesterday, Senator Debbie Stabenow, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, and Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Director Elizabeth Hertel announced a new initiative that they say represents the state's largest step forward in ensuring full permanent funding for community mental health and addiction services. Now, this is, uh, if we are to believe what we're hearing and seeing on paper, I would say the biggest step forward in this arena since uh, Governor Ingler really gutted community mental health and addiction services back in the 1990s, uh, a step that even he at this point admits was a real mistake given where it has left us uh, as Michiganders. So here to talk about this new initiative and other news from Capitol Hill is U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. Senator, welcome back to Detroit Today. Well, Stephen, it's it's always great to be with you and particularly to talk about uh, this issue, which has really been a, a passion of mine uh, my entire life. So, yeah, no, uh, I know you've and, been working and on this we're a making long time. real headway. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're making real headway with uh, what's happened. So. so so I want to start before we get to the mental health news. I want to talk a little about the passing of former Congressman Dale Kildee, who died at uh, age 92. I know you and he were, were pretty close. We were. Um, you know, I feel like we're, we're losing so many of our just wonderful, great uh, states people, you know, after losing Senator Levin not long ago, who was just an incredible role model for me and, and um, such an, an icon uh, for Detroit and for Michigan. And now Dale... Uh, Kildee, who uh, from the moment I was in uh, walked into the U.S. House, I was in the U.S. House for four years. Dale was just uh, the most supportive, the, the kindest, most encouraging person uh, that I worked with. Uh, he was Mr. Flint, and mm. he also was the champion for working men and women, and made it very clear. Uh, that he thought people should have, you know, access to unions and good wages and good pensions. And he just, he fought for working people every day and uh, was an incredibly important uh, part of making sure that, that the working men and women have the support uh, that they need. But most most of all, he and, and Gail, uh, his wife, um, were just um, wonderful people. And so uh, I, um, I, I know that he... Um, he uh, strongly encouraged his nephew, Dan Kildee, who is now mm -hmm. a partner with me in so many areas uh, that we work on together for Michigan. But um, he, he was just really an amazing man. Yeah, yeah, he was. Okay, uh, let's talk now about this new mental health initiative, why it's important, and uh, how you've gotten as far as you have. As you point out, this is something you've been working on for a really long time, and it's something that we have gotten wrong in Michigan 
as I said, at least since uh, the 1990s when, when Governor Engler made the changes that, that he made. First, uh, talk, about, um, talk about what this new initiative represents and uh, where we go from here. Absolutely. And you're right, Stephen, that in Michigan, um, ever since uh, Governor Engler shut down the hospitals that didn't provide community services, funding for community services, we've just seen, you know, a worse and worse situation happening for people. And I should say, stepping back, even prior to COVID, uh, we know that about one out of five people in Michigan will have some kind of a mental health issue in their lifetime. And that the number one uh, cause of death of someone under age 50 is a drug overdose. And so uh, both addiction treatment and mental health issues are their health care. And, um, and we need to treat them as health care. And that's the whole point of this. Uh, this whole process of transforming the system actually started a few years ago when I was working with a Republican colleague, Roy Blunt from Missouri, uh, on funding health centers. He and I lead the effort on community health centers, of which we have many well-established health centers around Michigan. And the way they get funding is they have to meet high-quality standards of health care, and then they get full funding through Medicaid, through insurance. They can fully pay their staff as health care providers. But in mental health and addiction, it's grants. So the grant stops and starts. So, you know, you, you, um, if somebody walks into a clinic and says, I want to deal with my addiction right now, I'm finally ready to do it. And you say to them, well, come back in six months. We don't have the funding now. That's just not going to work. I mean, we know what happens in that circumstance. Or somebody else who, who um, now in, in COVID, you know, uh, says, I, I really need some help to, to deal with what's been happening for me or for my family. So what I've been working on, and, and the culmination has now come to Michigan, is, um, first of all, doing uh, creating high-quality standards for what we do with uh, behavioral health in the community. Mm-hmm. We've been funding startup grants. We have 33 across uh, Michigan, 23 of those in uh, Detroit, Wayne, Oakland, Macomb counties. And yesterday we announced that clinics will get the full funding. The clinics uh, within this next step will get, just like the health center, just like the health center, the clinic's going to get full Medicaid funding to support whoever needs help. I mean, right now, um, uh, the local community mental health folks only get Medicaid funding for the most serious situations, not everyone who needs help. And so, Whoever walks in the door, whoever needs help, is going to get help. And the, one of the most important things is that we require 24-hour psychiatric emergency services. And that's one of the reasons that uh, around the state and around the country where this has already been happening, police officers are the biggest supporters of this effort. Because, And what we've seen in areas that have been doing this for the last couple of years is there's about a 60% reduction in the number of people that go to jail who don't need to be in jail, they just mm-hmm. need to get help. And so a police officer gets called, you know, they they don't, aren't sure, they have no place else to take them, so they take them to jail or they sit with them in the emergency room. Now, with these fully funded clinics, there's a 24-hour psychiatric uh, emergency service. People will be able to get the care they need officers will be able to to take people uh, to a place that will be able to help them. Hmm. So so what remains then of the work to, to do to continue to, I guess, fill the gaps that exist in sure. mental health here? Well, this is really important because, first of all, um, this process of getting funding has been a step-by-step, actually, over the last um, seven years for me since we first passed the law to create the high standards. Um, and, and it's not yet national. Michigan is now part of the initiative, this transformative uh, initiative. But in the Build Back Better budget, I am uh, working very hard to make sure we can have this be something that is, you know, national, uh, just part of our healthcare system. So that's um, very important. And we still have more work to do to get fully funded clinics in every part of Michigan. But then there's other pieces that this does not address. We know that um, having 24-hour psychiatric uh, crisis services will go a long way 
to get uh, support and immediate help for folks. But it doesn't address the need for inpatient uh, beds. You know, when you were talking about former Governor Inger shutting down all the hospitals, mm-hmm. truth is we didn't need people warehoused in hospitals that could be able to get support in the community and go back to living their lives and and go back to work and so on. But we do need um, uh, inpatient beds for people who need them. And so the, the next piece of it really is about uh, how we are able to get more inpatient beds. There's a real need for, for children, for young people, to get um, short-term inpatient beds to work with uh, community mental health mm-hmm. and uh, it, as, as well as beds for adults. So what we need is a continuum of care. We want to focus on the community. We know that for most people, uh, the combination of getting uh, help, getting counseling, getting appropriate medication and so on means that uh, they can, just like any other chronic disease, you know, if um, uh, if, if uh, you're a diabetic, you can go on medication, you can monitor uh, your medications and so on and continue to live your life. For much of what's happening in the area of mental health, if folks get the right help, they can monitor that, they, just like any other chronic disease, just because it's in the brain, it's just another part of the body, and, and folks can go on and live their lives. And so, so that's very important. And we need to feel confident with folks reaching out and asking for help. Um, you know, it, it, it um, shouldn't be something people are embarrassed about if you have a disease sure. that affects um uh, your brain um, and addiction, re, you know, reconfigures, reprograms your brain, uh, and uh, you have to go through a lot of work to, you know, undo that. Um, but the, the reality is that um, folks should feel comfortable, and, and we need to make sure people feel comfortable reaching out and saying, "Hey, I need some help." Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm talking with Senator Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat from here in Michigan about a new mental health initiative being put together uh, by uh, folks in Washington and folks here in Michigan to try to fill some of the gaps that we have in mental health services in the state, gaps that we've had now for several decades and that uh, it has been really challenging to figure out how to fill. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Call and uh, let us know what your experiences have been trying to get mental health services here in Michigan. Is it easy to find help or is it a struggle? What would you like to see happen to make it easier for everyone in our state to be able to reach those services and to make them affordable? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We've already got full phone lines here. This is a subject that always gets a lot of response. Let's start with Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Good morning. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I do. I think this program sounds really wonderful. I think it's great. Um, I just had a question, you know, about, you know, medical services in general. I know the senator said she has concerns about how if we had a single-payer system, how that would affect people who receive coverage through unions. So I'd ask, you know, why doesn't she think our old state labor secretary, uh, Representative Levin, has that same concern? Hmm. Uh, Great question. Uh, uh, Anthony, thanks for the call. Uh, Senator Stabenow, talk about ideas like Medicare for All and why you have been hesitant to embrace them. Well, first of all, thanks for the question, Anthony. And I should say, I think you said you're from southwest Detroit. I wanted to just mention that that one of our um, comprehensive clinics now being funded is Southwest Counseling Solutions. I was just down there not long ago. Um, they're really um, doing a great job, and mm-hmm. so um, that's, a, that's an important um, facility in the community. Um, from my standpoint, uh, just as what I've been doing in um, behavioral health, mental health and addiction, um, step-by-step building this out. I think that's what needs to happen overall in uh, our healthcare system. And uh, what I wish had happened back with the, in the ACA, the Affordable Care Act was a very important step because it basically said to, to everyone, you have a right to have affordable healthcare to 
be able to access the health care you need. And it changed people's expectations about health care, that yes, we do need to do that. At the time, I really pushed, though, um, for, for two things that I think would have made a difference if they had happened. One was what we call a public option, where uh, the federal government would create real competition by basically letting people choose Medicare, a structure like Medicare, um, if they wanted to, rather than private insurance, and then let people choose and see how that would work and how that would affect prices. I, I still support that strongly as a step forward to see how that works. Mm. Um, at the time, also, I was working with a colleague to try to lower the age of Medicare to age 55. We were very close to having that happen, one vote away from making that happen. I think that would have been a really important thing to do as well. There's a lot of folks in their 50s right now in limbo, or maybe they have to because of the job they have retire uh, in their 50s or early 60s. And I think that would have been really important. So I think in, <clears throat> I support um, more healthcare, and it's a question of how do you get it done. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm somebody who's shown that I know how to get things done, and um, and it's really a step by step building process. That so I mean, is it done. is it fair to say then that that you prefer to sort of incrementally try different approaches to making sure that more people get care rather than an all-in-one step forward like Medicare for All. Is that is that a fair distinction? Well, I want to get more health care to folks, and we don't have the vote for Medicare for All. <clears throat> That's just not something that I see is just going to happen. All in, in one fell swoop, what we need to do is um, have a an option, a public option that people mm-hmm. can choose or not choose to see how that works for them and then build out from there. I mean, that's the practical way that we move forward. We can have the bigger debate, which is fine. It's not going to move the ball in getting more people health care because it's just, I don't see, um, I don't see that happening all in one fell swoop. I'm, as somebody who was very involved you know, in uh, the Affordable Care Act and moving us forward and trying to do as much as we could, what I see is um, people have to, um, uh, buy in, see this works for them, and then and then we build on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Anthony, thanks for the call and the really great question. Let's go next to Mike in Bloomfield Hills. Mike, what's on your mind? Oh, first I'd like to thank W. Savinow for uh, bringing this topic and you to bring it to the public. Uh, well, this year, I'd like to start with saying uh, last year I just got out of doing a five-year prison bit. And I was uh, already on the drug case. I relapsed. And the judge, instead of, I had a bed waiting for me in rehab, instead of letting me go to the rehab, the judge decided to send me to five years in prison instead of getting the help I needed. Oh, no. And uh, mm. I don't know if this is still continuing. I do know that it's a, uh, an issue in our courts that they don't recognize that prison is not a place to get help. Right. It is a place to make your life more of a struggle. So, Mike, can can you talk just a little about what you were what you were sentenced for for five years in prison? Uh, well, the relapse is what made it five years. I was supposed to get three years for selling uh, selling drugs. Okay, back okay. in the case started in two thousand and nine. But but a nonviolent a nonviolent crime. Correct. Yeah, Mike, I, I really appreciate your 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 call and you sharing your story. I mean, this opens up a whole other dimension of this issue and the narrative around it, which is how we how we make sure that even uh, even with the the spare services and mental health supports that we have, we have a criminal justice system that oftentimes is not taking advantage of that and instead re- relying on incarceration. Uh, uh, Debbie, I'll give you a chance to respond sure. to Mike as well. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your calling. I really appreciate your um, talking a little bit about your story. And I'm sorry that you've gone um, through this. And um, and you're right. You need help. You need support. And, um, you know, just sitting um in a, a prison cell is not going to give you the help that, and I don't know what is available where you are, but I, I know in general it's 
it's not as comprehensive certainly as it should be. Um, it's hard. Um, you know, I, I don't say this from personal experience, but from family members, um, just, you know, how, how hard it is in terms of uh, addiction. I mean, uh, all, all the complications around that, but from a personal level, it, it, for a person, I mean, this is something that affects you physiologically. It changes the programming in your brain. It takes concerted help, constant, you know, continuous, everyday um, help to be able to reprogram your brain, to be able to get yourself out of that cycle. And so um, the whole point of the the clinics um, is to provide that kind of help. And I, I'm really sorry if you're not able to get that right now, but I, I wish you all the best. And I would urge you if you have the capacity to, you know, to uh, have phone conversations with people or I don't know what, you know, if you have the capacity to be able to do anything online or telehealth. I mean, there, there are folks out there that can, um, that certainly can help and talk to you. And I, w- I would urge you to get, you know, to keep at it. Don't give up. Yeah. Mike, I, I wish you all the luck uh, as well. And again, I really appreciate you listening and, and calling in. Okay, U.S. De- Senator Debbie Stabenow, of course, we didn't get to the other things on my list that I wanted to talk to you about, but that happens a lot <laughs> when we are uh, together and talking about things we get carried away. But uh, we'll have you back soon to talk about the other things that are going on in, in Washington. But thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Take care. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to change the subject and talk about the redistricting process here in Michigan, something that I see people's heads exploding all over the place about as the draft maps continue to come forward. We're going to talk with two experts who say that the process we're going through, however painful it might be, is better and is going to produce better results than what we used to see when state legislators had control of this process. Maybe a controversial position right now, given some of the maps that are out there, but a provocative position for sure. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. When Michigan voters approved Proposal 2 in 2018, they were told it would create congressional and state legislative districts that would better represent constituents. For decades, the party that controlled the state legislature every decennial year was able to draw those maps in secret, and they were drawn to the advantage, sometimes the extreme advantage, of that political party. That's why Republicans have dominated the state legislature for so long in a state with a population that is split pretty evenly between Republicans and Democrats. But Proposal 2 changed that. We now have a redistricting commission that is made up of 13 members, four identify as Democrats, four identify as Republicans, and five say they don't affiliate with either major political party. The Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission has been really hard at work trying to draw new district maps and is using a whole bunch of different rules. Partisanship is really not part of the process this time, and so other factors like communities of interest and minority votes are the things that they're really looking at in terms of how we ought to be divided and maybe put together as different communities in different districts. Pretty soon, the commission is going to open up its public comment period once it finalizes these proposed maps. But there is a lot of anger and frustration that I see on a daily basis right now on both sides of the aisle about how this process is going so far and what these new proposed maps look like. 
Now, before we get to our guests, I just want to say something about the nature of this opposition, this complaining about these maps. I think it's important, really important, that we are hearing from both sides of the aisle about their displeasure with these maps, and that we are hearing, in many cases, from ordinary citizens about this. There are a lot of people paying attention to this. There are a lot of people engaged in this process who otherwise would be left in the dark if we were still allowing the state legislature to handle this process the way that it did. So I think it's important for all of us to keep that in mind, even as we scrap or maybe even fight over what these proposed maps do to our communities and what we end up with. So here to talk about all of this are two people who know a lot about redistricting and our history of partisan gerrymandering here in the state of Michigan. David Daly is author of a book about gerrymandering, which we will be referring to on the radio today as Rat Bleeped, uh, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's de democracy. He has a piece in the New York Times titled, Voters Wanted Fair Redistricting, They May Get Gerrymandering Instead. David Daly, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me back, Stephen. Also with us is Jeff Timmer. He's a former Michigan GOP state executive director and longtime political strategist. Now, he's somebody who helped redraw Michigan's politically influenced maps in 2011, and they were drawn to favor Republicans, especially in the state legislature. Jeff Timmer, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. I look forward to this conversation. So I'm going to start here with both of your impressions of the maps that we are seeing so far coming out of Michigan's new redistricting commission. There are many drafts that are out there, and the commission, I think, is doing a fair job, at least, of showing the process, showing how the sausage is, is getting made here. Uh, David Daly, have you had a chance to look at these, and what's your, your reaction to them, given your take on partisan gerrymandering? I have. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Um, this is indeed the first time that regular citizens have had to take on this really difficult job. It's been made even harder by the fact that the timelines have been compressed by the U.S. Census data being late. And these are, you know, 13 regular citizens taxed with a very difficult job. Um, I think that the 10 draft maps that they approved the other day does a reasonably good job of unwinding much of the gerrymanders that we saw in Michigan State legislature and the congressional map over the course of the last decade. I had a lot of concerns along the way as they were getting there, um, concerns uh, about, 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 about staffing, concerns about speed, concerns um, about whether partisanship was seeping into the process, concerns about the um, uh, very conservative and uh, a, a law firm that they brought on as litigation counsel in order to, um, uh, that has got a history of defending pro-Republican gerrymanders. It seemed like an odd move for a commission that was tasked with um, trying to r restore public faith in this process. Um, but I think that what they have come up with here by most of the metrics has got a small Republican lean, but does a really good job, I think, of um, bringing back some balance and competitiveness into a purple state. Mm. And now that the public hearing process is about to begin, I think the real point of tension is about to become over racial representation, especially in the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, and the question of... Um, when you know when Democrats have been packed in the state in the past and gerrymandered, it has largely been black Democrats in De 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 Detroit and elsewhere who have been packed into districts that mm -hmm. you know, seventy or eighty percent of the of the district. And these maps attempt to to pull that back. Um, and the question is about to become whether they have pulled it back too far. Right. Right. Uh, Jeff, uh, this is a process that 
I'm sure you're looking at quite differently from the rest of us because you used to be behind the curtain with uh, state legislators trying to figure this out outside the public view and certainly with partisanship at the front of 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 their minds i i wonder what you make of what we've seen so far from this really different approach well i would say that the commission has done a reasonable job in moving the needle more toward the center more toward fairness but but I would say they still have a long way to go. They have a long way to go into erasing the Republican advantage that is still built into these plans, these 10 maps that they've come out with this week, still have the thumb on the scale to favor Republicans. And it's pretty easy to undo that. Um, and I'm sure that the uh, they'll hear a lot more about that during the public comment period. And uh, you know, I'm hopeful that they will move uh, these partisan measures, these these measures of fairness across the state, across these plans, that they'll move them closer to the center, closer to zero than they are today. Because, you know, it's it's certainly no secret. Uh, a federal court uh, ruled uh, that the maps that I helped draw uh, 10 years ago as, as well, uh, I drew the maps 20 years ago as well, but they've ruled that those maps were uh, disproportionately uh, uh, disadvantaged the Democrats, were drawn to maximize uh, Republican uh, 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 seats in the legislature and in Congress. And so if, if those maps were uh, extremely gerrymandered, the commission coming out with maps that are just a little bit gerrymandered in favor of Republicans still, I don't think, meets the intent of the constitutional amendment that was passed in 2018. So that's why the commission still has some ways to go. So I I do want to talk about the uh, maps and the way they treat African-American voters in particular, because I think this is likely to be one of the frontiers of the arguments about about the maps. And it is also something that is controlled by, by federal law. And there are a lot of requirements that have to be met. Uh, David, you started to talk a little about the history of packing African-Americans into districts in cities like Detroit that were, you know, north of 70 or 75 percent African-American places where uh, there was no doubt about the likelihood of electing an African-American to represent the, the, the people in those districts, these new maps spread those, those districts out and include voters of different ethnic background, but also uh, people who live in different geographic locales. Uh, and, and all of them on some of the drafts um, are below 50% African-American, which I think has got a lot of people nervous about whether that is an attempt to dilute the African-American voice in in our state legislature. Um, uh, Again, this this, this is a really sensitive part of the process, and it's going to look different than it did before. I guess the question is, how different is okay still with all of the rules that uh, we're supposed to be following? I wonder if you can talk just a little more about these these districts that are proposed and whether they pass muster uh, on the racial front. Sure, um, I think that it's it, it's a very sensitive and fraught topic, um, especially in this moment in our our political culture. Um, really, what this goes back to is the 1982 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. which essentially established that um, um, states should draw majority minority seats um, wherever it is possible to give cohesive minority populations the opportunity to elect a member of their own choosing, especially in locations where racially polarized voting is is present um, and the other races would block would vote as a block against them um, and so in 1991, in that redistricting process, the 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 uh, Bush Department of Justice really aggressively um, compels 
uh, southern states as well to 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 draw majority minority seats that are just that a majority of minority voters um and oftentimes you would see that percentage of the african american vote pushed you know 60 70 80% even in some districts above above 90% um and of course what that also does is it has the effect of bleaching or whitewashing surrounding neighborhoods because every line matters right um and it would make those districts whiter more conservative and more republican um and this becomes a really complicated issue right because prior to this you had very few african-american members of congress you had a state like north carolina that had had zero Mm -hmm. since 1900 um and by 1994 has Two and and so after the 1990 redistricting, you have the largest congressional black caucus since Reconstruction, but you also have the first Republican majority in in the U.S. Congress in about 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the the, the, the the Voting Rights Act does not technically require majority minority to mean 50 percent plus one. Um, and what we've seen over recent decades is that Republicans are trying to push that number higher. Many black Democrats who like having safe seats as much as any politician also don't mind that number being higher. And oftentimes people who, who want to elect more Democrats are trying to push that number lower. Um, and the, the political science right now suggests that a district between 35 and 40 percent African-American still has got the ability to elect a member um, based on white crossover voting. You've got 53 members of the Congressional Black Caucus right now, and only 18 of them come from districts that um, have a black voting age population above 50 percent. The median Congressional Black Caucus district in this country is 40 percent. And, and that 35 to 45 percent range tends to be where this commission has drawn the um, black voting age population, both for congressional and also state legislature. And for district. the state legislature, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeff, I wonder if you can talk about this process, given your experience packing uh, African-Americans into districts and places uh, like Detroit. What is what the current commission is doing look like to you? Well, let me share first the, the um, I guess, reveal that there were two main uh, keys to gerrymandering in Michigan. When I sat down to draw maps 10 and 20 years ago, the uh, relying on county and city or township geography, keeping those intact, helps Republicans. The other thing that helped Republicans was the Voting Rights Act, is the Voting Rights Act, packing those uh, uh, districts, those majority and minority districts into cities like Detroit. Uh, We would sit down and negotiate with certain members of the Black caucuses in the House and Senate in Lansing, uh, negotiate with them to draw the lines within the city of Detroit, for example. And in turn, they they voted for the plans. In 2011 and uh, 2001, there were uh, black Democrats who voted for the Republican gerrymandered plans. Uh, That was how we did it. And so uh, packing the African-American population of Detroit into districts that there are several uh, seats in the state house right now that are more than 90% black. And if uh, if that happens again, that only benefits Republicans. And so the, the what the commission is doing, I think, is, is uh, uh, better satisfying the Voting Rights Act, uh, packing uh, uh, black voters in Detroit into these districts minimizes the number of districts in which they can win. I saw maps uh, that were um, um, uh, revealed by a group called Promote the Vote Michigan over the weekend that has uh, what they're calling 20 uh, opportunity districts uh, in and around Detroit for uh, that are more than 40% uh, voting age population black that would 
allow uh, black candidates to win. And so, you know, we have 12 uh, majority black districts in the state house right now. Uh, there are maps out there right now proposing 20 seats. And so I think that, uh, you know, as the commission looks at, uh, at how to satisfy the, the, the state constitution uh, requirements about the Voting Rights Act, the federal law that protects minority voting rights, I think that uh, we will see a greater number of, of districts that will uh, call Voting Rights Act districts. Um, I don't know that majority minority districts uh, are, are the, the, the right uh, term any longer, but they, I think that uh, black voters will represent a majority of votes in these uh, Democratic primaries in these districts, and I think mm -hmm. that's what needs to be focused on. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about Michigan's new redistricting process and this citizen-led commission that is drawing our congressional and legislative lines for the next 10 years. We want to hear from you, the listeners as well. Are you concerned that the redistricting commission's maps, the proposed maps, might not be fair? Are they dashing the expectations that you had? for the way the maps should look? Or are you someone who's confident that when all of this is done, we'll have much more representative political maps than the ones we have in place now, which were drawn by Republicans 10 years ago? What would an ideal map look to you? And how happy are you with the process that uh, the citizen-led commission has adopted so far? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on uh, 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. My guests are David Daly, who is author of a book about gerrymandering, which we are referring on the radio to as Rat Bleeped, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. He also has a piece in the New York Times titled, Voters Wanted Fair Redistricting. They May Get Gerrymandering Instead. Also with us is Jeff Timmer. He is a former Michigan GOP state executive director and longtime political strategist. He helped redraw Michigan's political maps in 2011, and those maps were drawn to heavily favor Republicans who were running for office. We're talking about the new process that we're using here in Michigan. A citizen-led commission is taking a look at all the demographic data in the state and deciding how political lines ought to be drawn, which districts uh, we ought to live in together for the next 10 years. The draft maps of that commission's work are eliciting quite a few reactions across the political spectrum. Lots of people a little disappointed or upset about what they are proposing in part because it looks so different than what we're used to. Uh, also because there were some uh, strange alliances, let's call them, uh, that, that made the partisan process uh, acceptable to lots of people. That, that uh, process is not what's in place now, and so uh, those alliances really don't have the sway that they might have had before. We want to hear from you uh, as well. What are you making of this entire process? What are you making of citizens drawing the maps uh, ourselves? What are you making of the maps that we are seeing that are being proposed? Uh, do you think they are an improvement to what we had before? Or do you think that we are still maybe stuck in a place where the maps don't fully represent people the way you think they should? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into, the, into the process. We especially want to hear from folks who are trying to participate in this process. That's another really important change, I think. Before, uh, when legislators were drawing the maps, we didn't really get to participate in the process at all, let alone even see it. Uh, now there's lots of opportunity for 
ordinary citizens to watch, uh, to draw their own maps. That's happening uh, on some of the online forums where uh, the commission's work is being discussed. Uh, and soon there's going to be a public comment period where you will be able to go and tell the commission what you think. Uh, as always, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones if you want to talk about any of those things. Uh, Jeff, I want to uh, quickly, before we get to listeners, talk about the Republican criticisms of these maps. They are just as strong, I think, as the upset that you're hearing in Detroit right now uh, from African-Americans about the, 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 the maps. Um, in the case of Republicans, it's a question of adhering to county lines, uh, as well as making sure that communities of interest aren't divided up. I hear a lot about the city of Livonia and the way it is being carved up, I suppose, it might be the term, uh, under these maps. What do you make of, of those complaints? Well, as I, I mentioned in the previous segment, uh, the strict, rigid adherence to geography uh, was something that benefited the Republicans. And that's something that specifically was jettisoned uh, by the drafters of the constitutional amendment. Uh, there is no requirement in Michigan's constitution any longer uh, to preserve county or municipal boundaries. Uh, they're way, way down on the list of criteria is uh, language that says, give consideration to county, city, and township uh, geography. Uh, it doesn't say preserve it. It doesn't say maintain it. Uh, it says give consideration, and it's way down below a lot of other things. And so that's uh, that's the, the mechanism by which the Republicans were able to use what they could argue was subjective uh, criteria, you know, a political boundary, a county, a, a a city boundary. Uh, it's a it's an objective thing. Uh, they could use that to point to and say, look, we're just following municipal boundaries. We're just following county boundaries. But what in reality they, we realized was that benefited us politically. And that's why they're screaming bloody murder right now, because the commission has produced maps that reflect uh, the, the fact that school districts cross city lines, that people where people work uh, is in a uh, neighboring community to where they live, where they go to church might be in a third community. Uh, their community uh, isn't, isn't uh, a, a defined and confined by municipal boundaries. And the, the, the commission has done a good job of, of uh, uh, recognizing that and, and building that into the process. And so uh, the, the, the re that's one of the reasons why the Republican criticism is what it is. Yeah. And I expect that criticism to get louder because secretly the Republicans are still kind of pinching themselves that they're getting so lucky because the maps, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, are still favoring Republicans. Still they, if, 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 if they were to adopt any of these maps right now, the Republicans could live with it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can tell you that that's the case. They It still gives them an advantage in the state Senate and state house in Lansing that the, uh, that isn't reflective of the, the true political uh, uh, DNA of Michigan. Yeah. And so, so Jeff, I want to I want to introduce another voice into this conversation, uh, specifically because it's directed at your point, uh, Emily and Troy. Uh, Emily, talk about your reaction to these maps. Yeah, I'm very concerned because they put Troy with Macomb County, and I don't believe we share the same interests. And right now, Emily, talk about what your, your district looks like. Well, right now it zigzags and it's like White Lake and some other more conservative-leaning districts. And <laughs> that wasn't a good fit either. Troy uh -huh. is extremely diverse. Yeah. And we, I grew up in Huntington Woods, moved to Ferndale, Royal Oak, and then Troy, and we're all in Oakland County. Macomb is not Oakland County. Yeah. And uh, Emily, that's a great, that's a great point. And Jeff, I wanted to have her talk about that because it's not just partisans who are have these concerns. It's citizens who are worried about the way these maps might not respect municipal or county boundaries. 
Oh, well, I'm sure that I'm sure there are, and but, but uh, you know, there are going, I'm sure for every uh, uh, person in Troy who doesn't want to be in a district with Sterling Heights, you can also find people who would say, yes, I, you know, my, you know, I live in Troy, but I go to church uh, at St. Rene in, in Sterling Heights and, and uh, you know, I work in Warren. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, simply listening to anecdotal stories about what one person likes and what one person doesn't isn't the way to do this process. I don't think that's truly reflective. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I wish we could uh, go on and on with this subject. It's something that absolutely fascinates me. And I think there are a lot of, uh, judging by our phones here, uh, there are a lot of other folks who would like to chime in, but we are uh, out of time. Uh, David Daly and Jeff Timmer, I want to thank you for being here and uh, try to commit the both of you to coming back soon to talk as we get further into this process and start to really talk about the maps. I would love to have this conversation again, but uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk about this controversy over comedian David Chappelle and his Netflix special and the many responses it has elicited from across the cultural spectrum. Really interesting conversation about intersectionality, about race, about gender, about sexual identity, all of them in the same cauldron in that conversation. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station your connection to news, music, and conversation. We will talk again tomorrow.